before have we had such a blessed opportunity to build the more perfect union of our founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. After General George Washington and his troops won the American Revolutionary War in 1783, the story goes that one of King George III's ministers said to the king, we have to call a peace conference. Now, the king had just lost the new world. So King George reportedly said something like this, George Washington will not know how to be king. They will want me back. The assumption was that since Washington had conquered, Washington would be king. But the minister said, I understand he has resigned his office and gone home. And to that, the king replied, if that is true, he will be the greatest man in the world. You see, it has been said that Washington may have been less eloquent than Jefferson, less educated than Madison and Franklin and Hamilton, yet all these looked up to him because they trusted him with power. He abhorred kingship so much, he gave up power twice. Once after he got to the end of the war, he resigned his military commission and went home. And at the end of his second term as the first president of the United States. And this set a precedent for presidents for over 150 years. Washington knew what the founders saw, and that is that the most important thing in the U.S. Constitution was its separation of powers to enable freedom. In 1809, Thomas Jefferson wrote, No provision in our Constitution ought to be dearer to man than that which protects the rights of conscience against the enterprises of civil authority. And in 1822, Jefferson went on to also say that the constitutional freedom of religion is the most inalienable and sacred of all human rights. Religious liberty, in fact, was so significant to the United States that the Bible actually talks about it in relation to it as well. I go to Revelation chapter 13 and I notice what the Bible says in verse 1. 
Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. By the way, some manuscripts say he stood on the sand of the sea and that is a reference to the dragon we see in the previous chapter. And I continue. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Well, who is this dragon that I said is standing on the sand of the sea? We go to the previous chapter and in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 there is a very clear identification. The Bible says so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. The dragon is Satan. He is the self-made enemy of God and in the opening of Revelation chapter 12 we see a woman who is about to give birth to a child and this dragon comes and he stands in front of her and he's ready to destroy her child as soon as he's born. It's not hard to know who the child is because in verse 5 the Bible says that this child is caught up to God and to his throne. This child is Jesus and historically we know that Satan tried to destroy Jesus through the ruler of the Roman Empire Herod. Remember the story. And so the dragon represents Satan, yes, but also the civil power through which he attempted to kill Jesus when he was on this earth. As we continue reading in Revelation chapter 12, incredibly, the child escapes and the woman flees from the dragon into the wilderness for 1,260 prophetic days. That's 1,260 years. Hers is the experience of God's church. We find the reference of a woman in Bible prophecy representing a church, a church being found in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2. Well, since Satan couldn't destroy Jesus, he continued to work through Roman power to try and destroy his church. As historian A.C. Flick put it, out of the ruins of political Rome arose the great moral empire in the giant form of the Roman church. Historians estimate that between 50 to 150 million people were slaughtered under the sanction of the medieval Roman church. Perhaps this explains why James Madison, who authored much of the U.S. Constitution, Constitution, why he wrote in 1832, in the papal system, government and religion are in a manner consolidated, and that is found to be the worst of governments. You see, because through the Church of Rome, Satan was working with dragon-like power to attack God's church, heresy and unbelief in the teachings of the church were considered to be crimes that were worthy of punishment, capital punishment even. I quote, They believe the church may by divine right confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their person and condemn them to flames. The right to inflict the severest penalties, even death, belongs to the church. This was a quote from public ecclesiastical law. And so we see that at the hands of the church, even in the year 1572, the blood of 30,000 Protestants ran through the streets of several cities in France in what came to be known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. On this day, the church celebrated this as a victory. Bells rang in the churches from every steeple and a medal was even struck in commemoration. The medieval Inquisition carried out un 
unbelievable cruelty, which Pope John Paul II apologized for in the year 2000 as well. But Revelation 12:16 also says that the earth helped the woman. Protestants, many of them, escaped to the mountains and Alps of Europe and they fled across the seas to America where they found a haven for religious freedom. And the dragon that we met in Revelation chapter 12 was furious. Why? Because he failed. He lost the war in heaven. Revelation tells us he was kicked out of heaven, cast out of heaven. The child escaped. The woman that he's been chasing, she's escaped too. And then in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12, the Bible says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Literally, the dragon went away to prepare for a final battle. That's why we find him standing on the sand of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, because he is waiting for two beast allies, two beast buddies to work with him in an epic and dramatic final attack on the woman who just keeps getting away. In Revelation 13 verse 2 we continue, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. There is an unmissable link that we just read together right here. An unmissable link here to the beast that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw a lion, bear and leopard in that order because he was looking into the future in Daniel chapter 7. But here in Revelation 13, John is looking back and so he sees them in the reverse order. And notice with me how the dragon gives his power to the sea beast. The sea beast and the little horn, they seem to do the same things because they describe the same power. Verse 3 of Revelation 13 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The power of the sea beast lasted exactly 1,260 years until, as Lyle shared with us, on in February of 1798, Napoleon's general came and captured the Pope and it brought, as it appeared, the power of the church to an end. It was like a mortal wound for the power of the medieval church that had ruled over Europe and everybody thought it was gone. But in 95 AD, that's when John wrote the book of Revelation, John saw that it would return with more power. Earlier this year, I accidentally chopped the tip of my finger off with a hatchet while on a camping trip with my husband. And uh, I was actually trying to surprise him with my wood chopping skills. I thought, I'll show him that I can chop wood. And he was surprised, but it is the last time that I'm going to chop the wood when we go camping. What amazed us both was actually how well my finger healed. In fact, the fingerprints even returned back to the part of my finger that I lost. The Bible says that this power would receive a deadly wound and it heals. So much so that the world doesn't even see the scarring anymore. The sea beast is the dragon's first ally that we find in chapter 13. The dragon's second ally, the earth beast, is very unique. Every beast in Daniel chapter 7 has conquered through war and 
through war, it conquers the beast power or the kingdom before it. But the earth beast is different because it is the only beast in Bible prophecy that actually helps the previous beast recover its lost power. It's a functional beast, if you will. And as you look at all the characteristics that the Bible gives us of the earth beast, they point us to the United States of America. I read Revelation 13 verse 11. The Bible says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. That is in a gradual process of time. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. In Revelation, Jesus is called the lamb over and over again. And so we see the first thing here, that this is a nation that is Christian-like. It has two horns without crowns, representing two powers. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, the Bible says that horns symbolize power. But these two powers that the beast has, the earth beast has, they are separate from one another. They are a picture of church and state. And the strength of America's republic is in its separation of church and state. It's a state without a king and a church without a pope. And this very separation was based on the words of Christ himself. Jesus said that we should render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But there's a contradiction in the text because this beast, this lamb-like, Christian-like beast, speaks like a dragon. And we've met the dragon before. It means it speaks like Satan. It speaks like the church spoke in the dark ages. And for this very reason, the earth beast does some very strange and sensational things. I read on in verse 12 of Revelation 13. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The earth beast helps the sea beast recover its lost power and then it leads the whole world to worship this first beast. In order to do that, you have to be some sort of a global superpower to achieve this and that is exactly what the earth beast is. It is a global superpower. In fact, I quote the Sydney Morning Herald, September 20, 2002. This is what the paper said. Americans should admit the truth and face up to their responsibilities as the undisputed masters of the world. The fact is no country has been as dominant culturally, economically, technologically, and militarily in the history of the world since the Roman Empire. I go on. It reads in verse 13, He performs great signs, so that He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And verse 14, And He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which He was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. This describes a form of government where the legislative power rests with the people. This is yet another clue that points to us that this is the United States in Bible prophecy. He performs great signs, the Bible says. And I think of a Bible story of Elijah. In the story of Elijah, fire came from heaven to show who was the true God. But at the end of time, 
signs aren't always indicators of truth. Jesus even warned his followers in Matthew chapter 24 that false Christs and false prophets would show great signs and wonders to deceive people at the end of time. And these signs, the Bible says, they lead to the making of an image to the beast. Now, when we look in a mirror, we see an image of ourselves. That is, we see our likeness. To see what the image of the beast will be like, we simply have to look at what the beast is like, because the earth beast will form an alliance and copy the sea beast. And by the way, in the Ten Commandments, the second commandment of God forbids the worship of images, because all worship belongs to God. But something with the likeness of the medieval church-state system will be formed in America. In Revelation 13 and verse 5, the sea beast, the Bible says, speaks blasphemies. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is when a created being claims to be God. And since nations speak through their legislative and judicial authorities, when America assumes the prerogatives of God and passing laws and passes laws that remove individual rights and the ability to follow conscience, you can expect that it will develop a spirit of intolerance and it will persecute like Rome. Thus, America will speak like a dragon, like Rome, but to do this, it would require the reversal of the First Amendment of its Constitution, which safeguards the freedom and practice of religion. The Constitution of the United States, as we have already seen, is built on beautiful Christian principles. The Apostolic Church originally kept the things of church and state separate, but during the Middle Ages, the church changed this. Pope Pius IX, in 1854, he called the defense of liberty of conscience a most pestilential error. He called it a pest of all others most to be dreaded in a state. Well, Revelation 13, verse 15 continues, and I read, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. John wrote of a coming global edict about worship way back in 95 AD. He said that the earth beast will use its authority to enforce the observance of something at the end of time as an act of worship or homage to the medieval church. Revelation 13 goes on to call this something the mark of the beast. And there are two stories in the book of Daniel that bring this end time scenario into focus for us. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, the civil ruler of Babylon, he sets up a golden image, a giant golden image, and he commands everyone everywhere to worship it. This was a violation of the first clause of the First Amendment, if you will, the United States Constitution. It reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Was Nebuchadnezzar overstepping his jurisdiction as king when he did this? He absolutely was. He had the executive right to legislate in civil matters, but no right to command worship. And the immediate result 
was persecution. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three young men, model citizens. They were Hebrews, and they had obeyed the civil laws of Babylon. They even prayed for the king. But when the king of Babylon overstepped his bounds, legislating worship, three young men practiced civil disobedience. Because as Acts 5.29 says, the Bible says we ought to obey God rather than men. God intervened and saved the young men from the fiery furnace. And God, had he not helped them, they would have perished. In Daniel chapter 6, we see the violation of the second clause of the First Amendment illustrated. This states in the U.S. Constitution that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That is, the government can't prohibit you from practicing your religion and it can't establish a religion and tell you how to worship. In chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, King Darius made a law based on counsel from his advisors that no one could pray to any god but the king for 30 days. He was prohibiting the free exercise of religion. But Daniel didn't stop his practice of worshipping God. He opened his windows and continued to pray to God. Persecution followed. Daniel was arrested. And the king, who actually liked Daniel, he tried in vain to deliver him through finding a legal loophole. But the law couldn't be changed. And so again, God intervened, saved Daniel from the lion's den. John the Baptist too. He He was thrown into prison for telling King Herod that it was immoral of him to take his brother's wife. Herodias hated John the Baptist for this, and she thought to herself, how can I get rid of this man? One night her daughter Salome, who was the image of her mother, she danced for Herod at a drunken party, and she so pleased him that he said she could have whatever she wanted. Her mother said to her, request the head of John the Baptist. In Revelation 17, the sea beast is pictured as a harlot woman riding on a beast called the mother of harlots, meaning as a mother, she has daughters who do what she says. The harlot of Revelation 17, it represents the medieval church that has been unfaithful to the teachings of the Bible. And her daughters, the modern Protestant churches, will follow in the steps of their mother. Today, Protestantism has sadly lost its way. You can study the compromises it has made in favor of Rome. Go on the internet and Google it. The Bible predicts that modern Protestants and modern Catholics will join hands. Church and government will come together again, and it will come together in the United States. America is the country that led the world from tyranny to liberty, and it will lead the way back. The worst persecution always happens when church and state get together. Again, this is all over the internet. You can look at it on history. An alliance between church and government led to the crucifixion of Christ. Just like in the times of Jesus, the religious leaders back then, they said in John 11, verse 50, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. People will say, this is Christian to do this. This is patriotic and we need to do this for the land of the free and home of the brave. And if history proves right, then legislators in the United States will one day repeat the same mistake that Pontius Pilate made in the crucifixion of Jesus. 
in order to gain popularity. They will condemn innocent people. Christ's enemy wasn't the state. It was the religious leaders who were jealous of him. The religious leaders influenced the state power to kill their public enemy number one. This is really serious stuff. But is it really possible that the United States of America, this bastion of freedom in our world, is it really possible that it could one day violate its own constitution? Could it really act contrary to this beautiful constitution that has been so carefully balanced to prevent tyranny ever happening again? You might say, well, Sharissa, this will never happen in America. But we could have said that last year about a lot of things this year. It sounds insane, but the Bible says it will happen. And in times of severe crisis, natural disasters, collapsing economy, crime, nations do strange things that are out of character. When we forget history, we are doomed to repeat the errors of history. At the Federalist Convention in 1787, a lady asked Dr. Benjamin Franklin, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? A republic, he replied, if you can keep it. The Founding Fathers knew the importance of educating its citizens, their citizens, on history, which is why Samuel Adams wrote in a letter dated February 12, 1779, If virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, they will never be enslaved. This will be their greatest security. But year after year has gone by, and we have found ourselves further and further from the past. And things change. In 1903, Pope Leo XIII, he said of the Middle Ages, then church and state were happily united, end quote. But we look at history and we see the result of the union of church and state was persecution and death. In 1913, the following quotation appeared in Protestant magazine. It was a quotation from the Catholic Standard and Times of 1894. I quote, The United States of America, it can be said without exaggeration, are the chief thought of Leo XIII. A few days ago, receiving an eminent American, Leo XIII said, quote, The United States are the future. We think of them incessantly. In fact, in more recent times, Lutherans and Catholics who historically have had huge differences on how a person is saved, they signed a joint declaration of faith in 1999 basically saying, we agree. For 180 years, the makeup even of the Supreme Court in the United States was predominantly Protestants of European descent. Not because of any hatred towards Catholics or others, but just simply because they desired to see diversity represented in the court and to ensure that they avoided the tyranny they had all fled in Europe. Today, this balance in the Supreme Court has also shifted. In fact, today people are fascinated by the modern Catholic Church because it fights for human rights, for morality for marriage, it's pro-life, and it's for religious freedom. And these are wonderful things. But I ask you, if the beliefs that enabled her actions in history have not changed, has she really changed? If the teachings are the same, it means that she is still capable of what she did in the past 
does it not? The Bible predicts that at the end of time, the United States is going to join forces with fallen religion to create a system similar to that which we saw in the Dark Ages. And whenever religious people use the government to mandate things about worship, it's unchristian. Mandating prayer, putting God on our money, it doesn't make people moral. Governments cannot make us moral. Morality comes from loving God and obeying His law of freedom. In 1856, Abraham Lincoln said, Don't interfere with anything in the Constitution. That must be maintained, for it is the only safeguard of our liberties. You see, he recognized the ideas of the Constitution were timeless. And the founders of America wisely sought to guard against the use of civil power by the church, since it always leads to persecution. Madison, the author of the Constitution, he cautioned American citizens not to give Caesar what belongs to God and joining together what God has put asunder. He said the Constitution of the U.S. forbids everything like an establishment of a national religion. The national anthem says, Oh say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave? America is built on Christian principles. But is its constitution crumbling? In 2020, our world has been united by a common enemy, COVID-19. Civilization has been brought almost to a grinding halt by a microscopic parasite 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt. In order to secure its citizens, Americans have had to accept several violations of their prized liberty. The right to assemble, freedom of speech, religious liberty. And national emergencies like World War II and 9-11, they have always done this. And people have been willing to do this for the sake of the common good. The question is, after the threat subsides, will America recognize these constitutional violations or could they become the new normal? Regardless of what happens, the United States is headed precisely where prophecy predicted and we know the script. This will happen. Make no mistake. No matter how hard the dragon might try, in the end, God and liberty will triumph. How do I know that? Because Revelation 13 is not the end of the book. I'm so glad that you were able to join us for this presentation as part of our nine-part series on America and the End. But there is so much more that the Bible has to say about today and the times that we are living in. So if you would like to know more about what the Bible says about this subject and today, then we want to invite you to connect with us. There's a number on the screen. Please call or text us on this number. If you would like some Bible study guides that will help you to understand more about what God's Word says about today, or perhaps you would even like someone to personally study the Bible with you. That is something we would love to help you with. So please, don't hesitate. Call or text us today. We look forward to hearing from you. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to this evening's America in the End live Q&A. We've been here for each night of the series, and we're here again. And you're here again, and we're really excited that you're here to join us as we discuss the topic that was presented tonight. And uh, it was amazing. I was super blessed, and I hope that you were super blessed as well. My name is Matt Parra. I'm the producer of America in the End. And these are our speakers, for those of you guys who are joining us for the first time. And we hope that there are people joining us for the first time. This is where all of our audience gets to ask any question that they want uh, about tonight's presentation. So we really are, are looking forward to that. 
to engaging with you, to thinking about uh, your questions and seeing if we can come up with a biblical answer and a good answer for you. Uh, we don't know everything, um, do we? Nope. <laughs> not, not, not even close. Uh, but we love Scripture, and we love to carefully consider it and to learn from it. And uh, we have a lot to share, and we're glad that you could be with us so that we can share, and also so that we can hear uh, what everyone out there thinks. Um, I just want to do what we did last night to, to kick off the conversation. Are there any highlights from tonight's message that you guys wanted to maybe elaborate on, expand upon? Um, there was an interesting quote there that I hadn't heard before about religious liberty being called a pestilential error. Mm. You know, this is really cool language, you know, back in the day people used to, you know, they didn't hold back, they spoke their mind, and of course there you've got the Pope actually speaking his mind in relationship to religious liberty, which is super interesting in relationship to what is happening in the United States right now. Mm. Yeah, I just love the final line, um, and that was that Revelation 13 is not the end of the book. And uh, we're going to get into some of those other messages beyond Revelation 13, Revelation 14, uh, and even beyond for our last presentation, our last message. But um, I love that, uh, that quote from Ben Franklin that you shared, Sharissa, about how uh, this lady asked, you know, do we have a monarchy or do we have a republic? And he said, a republic as long as you choose it. And so that's a powerful point. And especially in the midst of an election that's not yet finalized, yes. um, you know, are we, are we going to, like, what is the path that the United States will go down and, and uh, what will it look like in our republic in the next mm-hmm. few months? Now, it's very interesting, particularly if you study it in the context of, you know, the Roman Empire, mm. when it moved and how it moved from being a republic to being an empire mm. and that whole process. And you see it being mirrored in the U.S. right now, mm. you know. As long as you let it. That's a really, really interesting statement because that was exactly what the situation was in, in, in Republican Rome. Mm. They were a republic for as long as they let it. Mm. And when they didn't let it anymore, it became an empire. Yeah. So interesting. So, Sharissa, you presented this evening's uh, presentation. Were there any parts of the Bible that really came to life for you when you were just preparing and presenting this subject? Yeah, it's, it might seem like a really simple thing, but just the very first word of Revelation 13, uh, which where I had always read it as being John stood on the sand of the sea, but to discover actually that there are some manuscripts that say he stood on the sand of the sea, mm-hmm. speaking of the dragon. And that just brought the whole thing together like a, a real story. I, it was like watching a movie as I read it. Yes. Because now I see the dragons preparing for his final attack and he brings together two beasts to help him. And it's, it's the last great epic attack on God's remnant at the end of time. The, mm-hmm. the remnant being those that remain and are the same as the original. That's what mm-hmm. the word means. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I really loved the point that you brought out in regards to uh, the church and how on a fundamental level, it has not changed its positions or its stances on certain theological issues and, and on its right to enforce its beliefs. Mm-hmm. And you made the point that if the system hasn't changed on a fundamental level, then it's liable to do what it's done in the past, even though the profession is different. And I, I thought that was a really mm-hmm. cool point. I love yeah. that, that, that insight. And I think that's, that's, a, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, canon law is still the same. Mm-hmm. The canon law of the ancient era is still the same today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really great point. Um, those of you guys uh, who are with us here, uh, 
we're looking forward to your questions. I've got a, a couple here. Um, and we'll just start jumping into the question that we have. Um, it's from David on YouTube. And Dave asks, what are the great wonders and fire from heaven in Revelation 13, 13? Airplanes and nuclear bombs? Well, yeah, this is a really good question. One of the things that we need to be very, very careful of in interpreting Bible prophecy is not to read the prophecy, see what it says, and then look out into the world to find something that looks like or sounds like. Mm. Looks like, sounds like, that is not a way to interpret Bible prophecy. Mm. Uh, Bible prophecy needs to interpret itself. Unless the Bible interprets itself, then all you're doing is actually speculating. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we're going to speculate, then your opinion is as good as my opinion. And this is what this is what non-Christians are always accusing us of. They're like, oh, it's just an interpretation. You know, it's your interpretation or my interpretation. And the simple reality is, is that if you have an interpretation of the Bible, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. The Bible must interpret itself. And to do that, we've got to stay within Scripture. So we can't just you know, read fire here and then say, oh, that must be nuclear uh, weapons because there's no biblical basis for that. Mm-hmm. We've got to find out what is there a biblical basis for. In the Bible, fire symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Um, in Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire came down on top of the disciples when they received the Holy Spirit. And what you've got taking place in Revelation chapter 13, the Bible says that he brings fire down from heaven, but this is not a good thing. And I want you to notice, I want you to see if you can pick up a recurring theme that runs through here. So if you go Revelation, uh, well, let's just read here Revelation 13, uh, verse 13, he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from uh, heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those that live on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. So your fire coming down from heaven is associated with miracles. Mm-hmm. Miracles live in the realm of the supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, nuclear bombs and aircraft live in the realm of science and technology. So we're talking about the supernatural here. Once again, you go over to Revelation chapter 16. You've got, uh, you know, uh, verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles. So you've got the supernatural coming through here. Mm-hmm. This is coming from a religious background. Mm-hmm. This is a false outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You go to Matthew chapter 24, and you've got this theme repeated four times in the first few verses, I think the first 12 verses, of deception. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is really trying to catch our attention here. Uh, but, of course, what is the deception all about? Verse 11, many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. You've got the supernatural. Prophecy exists in the area of the supernatural and in the area of the Holy Spirit. This is a false outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Go to verse 24. There will arise false Christs and false prophets and show great signs and wonders in so much that if it were possible, they will deceive the very elect. Is anybody starting to see, you know, the same theme being repeated over and over yeah, and over again? Probably. One more passage on this. We're going to go back to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Hmm. Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at uh, verse 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. There's your acid test right there. He that does the will of the Father. Verse 22, many will say say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? Hmm. 
And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Okay, so here's the thing. Miracles are not wrong. There is nothing wrong with miracles in and of themselves. Miracles happen all the time. God does things. Supernatural events take place that take place under the power of God. But God is not the only supernatural being that there is in our world. Mm -hmm. And Satan is a supernatural being. He is able to do supernatural things. He is able to uh, pour out a false Holy Spirit. He is able to do miracles. And here's the key. If your religion, if your faith (coughs) is tested by miracles, if you use miracles as the acid test, the supernatural as the acid test of what is true and what is wrong, you are set to be deceived. Because the Bible says that's how people will be deceived at the end of time. This must be the acid test of truth right here. Mm. And if you make this the acid test of truth, then you won't be deceived. It's that Mm. simple. I was just going to say absolutely. And um, just that last verse that Lyle took us to in Matthew chapter 7, the words of Jesus, Lord, Lord. So obviously these are Christians. Um, have we not prophesied, cast out demons in your name, have done, done many mighty wonders or work miracles, in other words, in your name? Mm-hmm. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There is a movement, a large and growing movement in the world today uh, that is claiming to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that is working legitimate supernatural miracles. They're not from God, but they're legitimate miracles that are happening Miracles of healing, miracles of different kinds. Um, and this same movement, the way that we know they are not miracles of God is because they're also telling people, you don't need to care about God's law. It doesn't matter. Just give a thousand dollars to our ministry. It'll break the back of debt. You know, you'll get 10,000 more. God will bless you. And, um, you know, this kind of thing, which the Bible also warns us about in the New Testament about people who claim to be ministers of God who are just in it for the money. Mm. Um, and so we see that there's a movement that is fulfilling these characteristics today. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be other ones later on and there will be a growing uh, a rise in these things as time goes on and as miracles increase, but God's genuine miracles will increase as well. Can I just share a verse on this and then I know we're done on this. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go other after, sorry, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. The Bible says you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that Mm. dreamer of dreams. Why? For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with Mm. all your soul. Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Mm. Amen. This is so powerful, Sharissa, because you just answered the next questioner's question. (laughs) (laughs) Praise the Lord. Right? So... Uh, who is it here? Let me put my glasses on. Rosie from Facebook asked, how do you tell the difference between miracles of the beast and those of God? Mm. And you just, you just, that's the text, mm. right? Yeah. The Ten Commandment law of God seems to play a, a role in earth's final scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you guys want to comment on that just a bit? Because that seems to be where the Spirit of God has led us in this answering of the first question that we were answering here in regards to the fire. Yeah. Okay, so you read a text, Lyle, in Matthew 7. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you. 
It's those who do my will. Mm -hmm. You guys practiced lawlessness. Mm -hmm. You had a form of religion that was Christian, but you abandoned the standards of Christ, the laws of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it was um, a religion that touted itself as Christian, but it wasn't. Um, And then... Uh, what other texts of scripture can come to you guys' mind? There's a few that are popping up in my head yeah. that show the law of God being well, actually, an issue at the end of time. The very fact that at the end of chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon is angry with the woman. Why? Because her seed keep the commandments of God. Mm-hmm. It's mentioned right there in the faith of Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you go to Revelation 14 and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You go to Revelation chapter... Uh, whereas at twenty two fourteen, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to enter into the tree, mm. in, into, into the city and eat of the tree of life. The Bible says, you know, not those that say Lord, Lord, but those that do the will of the Father. That's mm-hmm. right. And Jesus in, in Revelation 14, 1 through 4, talks about those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeping God's commandments are all about. It's not out of this, this legalism or this, no, it's out of loyalism. We love him. He <laughs> saved us. And as a result of that, we want to do what pleases him. Yes. Um, you know, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, there's this connection between love and the commandments. Mm-hmm. That's why in uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, in verse 10, it says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's powerful. You can't separate the love of God from the law of God because the law of God is a transcript of his character. And the love of God, I mean, love, God is love. First John 4, verse 8. Um, and in the, on the note of the end of time and God's commandments, we're talking about, the previous question was asking about this false Holy Spirit movement, this fire coming down um, from God out of heaven. It's a, uh, it's attended with miracles and different things. Acts chapter 5, this is a powerful point that the apostles make. Um, the apostle Peter here, I believe, he says, and we are his witnesses of these things in verse 32, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Mm. And so there's a beautiful connection with when we are saved by grace through faith, the natural response toward God is following his ways, obeying his commandments because we love him. Not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And as a result of of surrendering our lives to the Lord, we're filled with his spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills us, he lives out, Jesus lives out his life within us. It says in Galatians 2 verse 20. And so he keeps keeps all of his commandments. uh, And we do that with his cooperation out of loving obedience to him. So there's this, important connection with the genuine filling of the Holy Spirit and the desire to love God by keeping His ways and His commandments. Amen. Excellent answers, guys. I really appreciate that. I'm sure that you guys do as well. I'm going to take a quick uh, break in the action here to just remind everyone at home that we are offering anyone who would like a free copy of this book. It's called The Great Controversy. And this book in such beautiful terms, and just such a beautiful way, uh, outlines all of the issues that Scripture brings out about the end of time and America's role in prophecy. It's one of the best books ever mm. written on uh, prophecy 
and the history of Christianity. It, it starts in the time of Jesus and just chronicles Christian history all the way to the end of time and talks about all of the great apocalyptic prophecies. And so, once again, it's called The Great Controversy, and this is the actual copy of the book that we're giving away for free. So if anybody wants a copy of that, just uh, text into the number on the screen or just give us a call. We're happy to share this amazing book with you, and uh, and you'll be blessed. It's 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 one of those books that just fully reshapes your paradigm Amen. in the most positive way. Really it's just awesome. I love this book. It's the kind of book you you need to read every three years mm-hmm. as a Christ follower. It's absolutely awesome. Okay, um, getting to a few more questions. I'm loving where we're at in this conversation, guys, and I'm tempted to stay here mm-hmm. because this is just such a blessed discussion and so many powerful scriptures you're bringing up. But we do need to kind of move on to address some other questions, and I'm sure... Um, Answering these questions is going to be just as awesome. Um, okay, Mozart asks on YouTube, and I'm not sure, Mozart, if I understand if you're still with us, this question perfectly, so I may ask you to rephrase it. But you ask, with America's official withdrawal from the Paris Agreement on November 4th by this current administration, how can this move suddenly affect the results of these elections with climate change on? I think, I think... What I'm hearing you ask here, Mozart, is that America's withdrawal from the Paris Agreement is going to affect this, has affected this election, that lots of people don't like that and are going to vote against the Trump administration because of that. I'm not sure. Can we answer this question? Maybe not, because I'm not sure. It's not really, it's not really my uh, area of expertise, yeah. is how much uh, the climate change issue has swung the votes mm-hmm. yeah. either direction. Because it's, you know, this is a move that uh, Trump has done. It's going to swing some votes one way, some another way. I'm not an expert in that to say, you know, how it's actually affecting the election right now. Yeah, I don't think any of us are really qualified. Good for answering that question. Um, Okay, because some people love it that it's been removed from the climate (laughs) accord. So some people hate it. So there we go. Um, Rosie, as I mentioned, asked the question, guys, how do you tell the difference between miracles of the beast and those of God? That was so cool how the Holy Spirit led Teresa to answer that question ahead of time. And I hope that you appreciate that, um, those Bible verses and those answers there. I think that it's, I think that it's important too. We just, you know, you don't just discount uh, miracles. People come to me and talk to me about miracles, you know, fairly regularly that have happened to them or to other people. And I never discount it at face value. Mm-hmm. You know, just because the Bible says that miracles will be a major part of deceiving people at the end of time. I have nothing to fear from those miracles because I'm not making them a test of my faith. I'm not testing truth by those miracles. And for the most part, it's just people, you know, randomly being blessed. Who am I to judge? Mm. But when somebody says this is evidence of the truth, then I will test the truth that they are stating based on the word of God, not on those miracles. That's right. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and Mm. is profitable for doctrine, Mm -hmm. which means teaching. Mm -hmm. So how do I test what's true? Mm. The scriptures, the holy scriptures, uh, fantastic. Yeah, you know, the law of God playing a part too at the end of time, and we got into that whole realm of discussion for a bit, and I almost feel like I want to keep talking about it a little bit more because we, we don't have a ton of questions tonight. We've got two more. I think we've got plenty of time to get to them. Mm. Um, but I just want to build off of something that you said, Justin, and see if we can talk together as a group about this. I think it's a very profitable conversation. Um, the law of God being a transcript of his character. Mm. And the Bible saying in Romans 13.10 that love is the fulfilling of the law. Mm. 
This would mean then that the law of God is love expressed in practical terms and in practical ways. And so we see the faithful at the end of time keeping the commandments of God in Revelation 14, 12, Revelation 12, 17. Um, Okay, so this seems to indicate then that there's an issue between true, genuine, authentic Christ followers who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, as you mentioned, Mm. and who live out love in their life, which means that they pursue the keeping of God's commandments, not to be saved, but because they are, uh, versus people who make a pretense of religion, Mm. but they don't do the will of God. They have, like Paul says to Timothy, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. So to them, it's not about being like Jesus and following the laws of the kingdom of heaven for God's sake and for goodness sake, Mm -hmm. but rather it's just like, yeah, I'm saved and yeah, I'm forgiven and yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a pretense. You know, that's what I, it seems to be articulated there when you combine all that Revelation says. I right, passage here in First uh, John on that one, Matt, mm. where it says in First John chapter one and verse five, uh, well, actually verse three. For this is the uh, sorry, verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous to us. You know, I have sometimes Christians come to me and they're all down on the law of God, and I'm like, okay, you know, which one of these is a bad thing? Why be down on the law of God? Why be so keen to nail the law of God to a cross? Which one of these do you dislike? I read them, and I actually really like all of them. These are good laws right here. And when you look at the commandments, the first four are all about love to God. The last six are all about love to each other. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of the Ten Commandments. And that's Mm -hmm. what Jesus says. On these two commandments hangs the whole law. It can be summarized Mm -hmm. right there. Right there. So good. So good. Thank you. Please, Sharissa, don't hesitate. Come on. So... um, I think I've said it in this presentation that the way that Satan tries to put himself above God is by changing God's law because as you've been bringing out, law is a sign of love to the lawmaker and a sign of allegiance. So it's interesting that I'm just thinking here of a verse in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 and 10. It says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. It's not a surprise because he's trying to put himself above God. So if he can do away with God's law or change God's law, anyone who would obey that law instead of God's law would be giving their allegiance not to God but to Satan. Um, it says, uh, so the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous uh, deception among those who perish. And this is interesting, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Just super quick, uh, Matthew 24, Jesus said that a sign of, his, of the times and of the nearness of his coming, one would be, um, he says in verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So there's an equation here. Um, God's law is, is left. There's no law. Therefore, there's no love. Mm. And the opposite of that is true as well. When we love God, then we will keep his law. Mm-hmm. And someone asked the other night, what's the key moral issue at the end of time? And we said morality. And to put it even more clearly, um, morality in following God's ways. Mm-hmm. Because morality, true morality can only be found in God's word and his law and his will. Amen. Can I just add one other thing? Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. So it's interesting because tonight we're talking about the image of the beast. 
And the very first time the word image is mentioned in the Bible is in the Genesis account where God said, let us make man in our image. Mm. What did that mean? That we have deity? No, but we have dignity. God made us to be moral beings um, and also beings that have freedom of choice. But sin came, marred the image of God in humanity. Uh, it's interesting, at the end of time, there will be people that will come to reflect the beast in their behavior, or we can reflect the image of God um, if we follow Jesus. And there's just one verse on that. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And by the way, God's glory. Moses once asked, show me your glory. God passed before him and he said he proclaimed his name to him. So God's name, his character, that's in the Hebrew context, the name is associated with character, is God's glory. It's God's law. You know, it's his character right there. Um, by beholding that glory as in a mirror, we are being transformed into the same image. God mm-hmm. wants to re- restore his image in us from glory to glory, just as how? By the spirit of the mm-hmm. Lord. It's Amen. a spiritual thing that God Perfect. wants to do in us. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, okay. So we've got more questions have come in. I thought we only were going to have a couple more to address. But for now, rapid fire succession, guys, as best as we possibly can. Uh, we're going to get to these questions. Vanessa asked from Facebook, uh, Vanessa, I think your name is Vanessa or Vanessa, when Satan comes as the counterfeit Christ performing miracles, will he be able to raise the dead. Mm. Mm. Yeah, great question. John chapter 11, um, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Satan does not have power to give life. Now, can, can he make it look like someone was dead and then resurrect them? Well, yes, he could. Just like he can inflict people with sickness and then miraculously heal them by removing that sickness that he put on them from them. Um, Jesus is the only author of life. Uh, will the devil try to, to counterfeit a miracle like raising the dead? He may try, and he may convince many people that he has, but ultimately, only Jesus has the power uh, to raise the dead, to give life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the Bible teaches, especially in John 11, but elsewhere as well, really clearly. Mm-hmm. Oh, Sharissa's got a great verse here as well. I think she'd like to share with you. Uh-huh. Revelation chapter 1, that's a good one. Revelation 1 verse 18, go for it. It says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Mm, yes. Amen. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, one last verse, Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-nine. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I destroy and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. So just mm-hmm. the same concept, you know, God is, Jesus is on the resurrection and the life. So, yes, great answer. But he will, tr- he may try to, uh, to counterfeit. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that would be a, that would be an incredibly deceptive sign and wonder if he raised even faith leaders from other denominations or other religions, like it could be, yeah. Someone who comes back and says, Oh, I'm the apostle Paul. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, look, demons yeah. can impersonate human beings as well. So. Well, the Bible says that in, is it, is it, you guys can help me out here. I think it's first, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, 2, is it? That you should be careful when you entertain strangers because some mm. people have entertained angels unaware. Yes. And mm. so if the That's angels right. of God 
can show up on earth in human form, then surely so could the fallen angels, mm. right? Manifest themselves to look like human beings, meaning you could have devils uh, showing up to look like dead people or the lost, or they have supernatural powers, as Lyle was saying, and they can do miracles. Mm. And you could have a person, an angel that looked to be a person that could feign death as a person and that could come back to life. Hey, I'm back mm. to life. Mm. And this, and this is why I think it's essential that the word of God is our rule of faith and practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the basis of our faith. Mm. The basis of our faith is not the demonstration of our senses, where we see miracles, we see signs, we see wonders, but it's what the word of God says, the evidences of the word of God. Mm. What we see, um, our senses what we see can change. Our senses can deceive us, but the Word of God never changes. And so that's, that's right. a stable basis for faith. Amen. Yeah. Um, okay, yes, so uh, David Spain has asked from YouTube. This is, gonna be, this is a tough question, David. Uh, can you give any actual historical examples of the deceitful fire from heaven, or has it not happened yet? Is this a one-off event or continuous over years even decades. Yeah, can I, maybe I can comment on this one. If you study the, if you study God's people back in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees taught a doctrine that stated that if you had wealth and health, those two things, they were a sign of the blessing of God. So obviously, if you had wealth and health, that was a sign of the blessing of God. If you did not have health, or and or if you did not have wealth, then that was a sign of a lot less of the blessing of God, and so you needed to give more money to the temple so that you could receive the blessing of God and receive wealth and health. That was the doctrine of the Pharisees, and that's what Jesus spent so much time fighting against back in the first century. What's interesting is in Revelation, when you go to the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, you find that the Bible describes God's church or the Christian church or the church in general as being Babylon, confusion. And in verse 4, the Bible says, and this is a, a message that happens just before the return of Christ, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, her here is Babylon, so come out of her, my people. And so what you've got is a situation at the end of time where the vast majority of God's people are within Babylon and God is calling them out. And so we've got to ask ourselves, well, what is this system? And there are a number of different things that we can look at, but what I think is very specific or very interesting, if you go down through the rest of Revelation chapter 18, which speaks about the fall of Babylon and the reasons why Babylon fell, what you're going to read is about the wealth of Babylon. This is an organization that has made is making a massive appeal to the desires of the flesh. It's all about, you know, uh, it, it's religion that focuses on, you know, what can I get? What, you know, how much money can I make? How much, you know, and hey, we look at the United States today and the prosperity gospel originated in the United States and is being exported around the world. It's a slightly more refined version of the cargo cult that you have in Papua New Guinea, but there's not a lot of difference between it when you actually uh, dig down into the into the roots of it. Mm. And what this prosperity gospel is doing is is literally raping poor people of all of their wealth with empty promises. And it's a terrible thing. It's a blight on our earth. 
the whole focus of Revelation chapter 18 in the form of Babylon is all about the greed and the wealth of Babylon. That's what it's all about. And what is, I also find interesting about this prosperity gospel that has been spread around the world, which is you know, effectively the teaching of the Pharisees, mm. is, there's no difference. It's just so repeated. That's a cool comparison, by yeah. the way. That's a brilliant comparison. It's exactly the same thing, just being repeated yeah. again. Uh, what, what's interesting is not only does it originate in the United States, but it is driven by a movement that is focused on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we've got preachers who are talking about, you need to receive the Holy Spirit and you need to have the Holy Spirit come upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will experience all of these great miracles and so forth and you'll be able to fly in, you know, have your own private airport with, you know, a fleet of private jets and everything else like I do. Mm-hmm. And then we compare that with Jesus who when he came to his the time of his death, his sole possession was the equivalent of a bedsheet. Mm-hmm. It was a piece of cloth that didn't have a seam. That was all Jesus had. Mm -hmm. And when I put those two side by side, and then I go to Revelation, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, and I don't know that it can be better described than this. The Bible says, where am I going? Wrong direction. Let me head this way. (laughs) Matthew is over this way. We'll get there in the end. Here we go. In the end? Yes. (laughs) Ah, sure, this is sharp tonight. Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse uh, 20, the Bible says, wherefore by their fruits you will know them. Mm. You know, that's so insightful. Jesus is saying, look, lots of people at the end of time, they're going to be saying, Lord, Lord, they're going to be saying lots of things about Jesus. They're going to be professing the name of Jesus and they have no salvation because they're not doing the will of the Father. They are preaching a religion that is just purely appealing to the flesh and the religion of Jesus is to take up our cross and die to self Mm. Not live for self. Amen. Mm. That's right. Excellent. There's your false Holy Spirit. There's your false yes. pouring of fire from heaven. Yes. Right been happening for decades. Yes. You know, in Revelation 13, it says that he, speaking of uh, the beast, or sorry, the second beast of Revelation 13, he had power to give breath or life to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because the name, the, the word there, the Greek word that is translated life or breath, he had power to give life or breath to the image of the beast, is the same Greek word that uh, is, is spoken of in John 20, when Jesus just resurrected from the dead, he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Mm. Right? So, which is fascinating to me. So, you have Jesus. He formed the disciples. He trained them. He disciplined them. That's why they were called disciples, because to be discipled is to be disciplined. So, he forms the disciples. They're the body of Christ, which means they reflect his image, his Mm. shape. And then he breathes on them and says, as a a symbol, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to give the church life Mm. and power. Mm. Right? And how do you give the Holy Spirit? You mentioned, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will send you the Holy Spirit. Mm. So the application of God's word, the inculcation of his word into your life, the willing submission to his will, and the, and the following of Jesus for real, then you get the Holy Spirit. Mm. That's what the Bible says. But in Revelation 13, you've got an, a, a false religious system. It's devoid of the Holy Spirit. It's devoid of the power of God. So what does it need? It can't come to life through the power of the word, through the power of, 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 mm. of God, through 
following Jesus for real. So it has to, the devil has to give it a false Holy Spirit, a false manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which is based purely on signs, miracles, and all this kinds of stuff. And it's not based on you truly following God and accessing the power of God. Yeah. So guys, we're out of time basically, but I really want to get to these three questions. So can, can we um, do the impossible here? And I'll just, I'll just read a question and, and just, and then one person will take it. And whether, whether the rest of us like the answer, if it's comprehensive enough, we're going to leave it alone. Mm. <laughs> That'll be very Sounds hard good. for us, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> we'll give it a shot. Okay, so I haven't read this question yet. I'm just reading. Harry from Facebook. Daniel 2.34 talks about a stone that was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. What does this mean in regards to the church and state? And does this verse get fulfilled in the book of Revelation? I'm going to go to if... I was going to say you, Sharif. <laughs> you're pointing at Lyle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I spoke last. He spoke, that's what I was thinking. He spoke last. Okay, so you're pointing, pointing at <laughs> You know, it's funny because we've no gotten problem. a few, uh, uh, some feedback from some people who've written and said, Sharissa, you need to talk more. You know, <laughs> you know, stop those guys from talking too much. If you could ever get a word in edgewise, we want to hear you talk more. But you see, guys, she's just trying to, <laughs> she's trying to let her she's speak, thinking. but she's just. Yeah, <laughs> you know. yeah great question. Uh, so Daniel 2.34 talks about the stone but so does Daniel 2.44 where it says and then in the days of these kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever that's clearly when Christ comes a second time he will set up his kingdom and um, yeah we can uh, talk a bit more about that but uh, that's the short answer is that it happens in Revelation Revelation uh, chapter 19, where Jesus is coming. That's one of the scenes where Christ is coming. Revelation 6 is another one. Uh, there are multiple of them throughout Revelation, but that's when Christ will set up his kingdom, which is that stone that grows to fill the whole earth. Excellent answer. Good job, brother. Um, okay, so Junior on YouTube has asked, are we now very close to the close of probation? <laughs> he, she's point, he's pointing at you, Teresa. You yeah, we better have Teresa. Okay, what's the what's the question that comes after that, Teresa? You take one, and I'll take the other. All right. So let's hear the next question. We'll hear them each. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, the next question is from uh, Tari on Facebook, or Dante. Tari says, Tari's account says, "My name is Dante. If Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, why didn't he just avoid him?" Okay, I'll take the first one. You'll take the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quick enough as well. <laughs> okay, real quick, let's go. Let's do it. So, Sharissa, the first question is, are we now very close to the, the close of probation? Well, there's a few things that have to happen first before that. We know that we're coming to that point. Um, and first of all, we have to see the image set up, and mm. we have to see a, a, a command to worship. And also a death decree of some sort that will be um, put in place. Until then, we are, we've still got a bit of time. But now is the accepted time. Now mm. is the day to to make yourself right with God. That's what Bible says. Amen. There you go. Excellent answer. Why would you be hesitant? I have no idea. <laughs> Praise God. That was a great answer. Thank you. So, did you remember the question there, Lyle? Why didn't Why didn't Jesus avoid he, Judas? He knew Judas was going to betray him, and it's uh -huh. evident from the scripture he knew. Uh -huh. Why didn't uh -huh. he just avoid? And, him? and what's interesting about this whole question is that in the Bible, 
you will never find any record of Judas being called by Jesus. Mm. Mm. All the other disciples they were called, there's no record of Judas ever being called. That's interesting. Okay, so let's 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 look at the let's look at the alternative then. Let's say that Jesus did avoid Judas. Where would we be now? If Jesus had avoided Judas and he hadn't died, he hadn't gone to the cross, he hadn't been crucified, if none of that had happened, where would be we be now? We would be without hope. And so this was a decision, you know, Jesus is God. At any point in that scenario, he could have avoided Judas. He could have asked and 10 legions, 12 legions of angels would have turned up and taken him down off the cross. At any point, Jesus could have stepped down from the cross. The nails, the Roman nails in the hands and in the feet of Jesus were not, was not what was holding Jesus mm. to the cross. It was not what was holding him in association with Judas. It was you mm. and me. That's what held Jesus on the cross. That's what held him in association with Judas because he saw us and he couldn't bear the thought of spending eternity without us. And it was worth his while to go to the cross and to die that horrendous death so that we can have salvation. That's how much Jesus loves us. And he is offering us his salvation this evening because of that. Amen. Mm, he didn't come to avoid the cross. He came to pick it up. Mm. Uh, Okay, last question, guys. Should we be voting for Christian politicians and leaders who will probably be the ones who enact laws bringing together church and state in the end? Too late. The election's already over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your chance to vote was was yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Uh, Anybody want to give that a go? I mean, I'm happy to do... Who hasn't answered? Matt, you haven't answered. Yeah, Oh, boy. Yeah, well... um, Oh, I don't even know how to answer this question, uh, Scott. Good, good question. It's a very relevant question. It's not, it's not a simple question in my estimation to answer. So I'll just shoot from the hip. I think that we should be voting on issues, not for political parties. Yes. And I think that the closing scenes of Earth's history can be brought into effect by either party. I think this is something that we don't really consider enough. Uh, the Church of the Middle Ages really was pagan. It was a continuation of pagan Rome, but it just had a Christian veneer. And so pagan Rome persecuted uh, Christ and Christians, and papal Rome persecuted Christians, and consequently Christ through persecuting Christians. So, um, you know, y- you can try to vote your way into a comfortable situation, like, I'm going to vote for this political party because I think they'll be the ones who hold off the, the end of the world uh, scenes or the scenes at the end of time, and then I'll protect myself. But that, that, I don't know if that's a good motive for voting. You know, like, I'm going to vote to preserve myself. Um, I don't think that's, that's good at all. I think that we should vote for those we believe that will stand for the right. That's mm-hmm. what I think. And um, when I say stand for the right, I don't mean that will legislate that other people have to worship God a certain way. I mean, decent, virtuous men and women who genuinely have the best of their people in mind Mm. and uh, want to create the best possible world and have the best possible standards and best possible values that they believe in, affirm, and live by. And so, yeah, look, if you, just a radical example, an extreme example, if you lived in the 1800s, and 
abolition was an issue, right? The abolition of slave, slavery was an issue. I would recommend, if I lived in that time frame, I hope, to vote against politicians that endorsed the sin of slavery. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would not vote for a particular political party. I would vote for individuals who stood for stood on the right side of issues. That's what I would do. So I would just simply say, distill it all down, make it simple for yourself, and vote for people who value what you value, who uphold virtue and decency and biblical principles. And one biblical principle is that you don't force biblical principles on people. Mm. So that's that's my, my answer to that. It could be answered a lot better. But that's the answer I've given, and I hope that I could be of use to you. Um, we're done for the evening, everyone. Don't forget, if you're interested, you can order this book from us, but you don't have to order it. You just text or call the number that's been on your screen all night. Great controversy. You can get a free copy. Um, thanks for joining us. It's been fun. Thank you guys for your answers and availing yourself of God to give these biblical and spiritual and powerful answers. I believe everyone listening, uh, God has brought us all together for a purpose. These answers that have been shared, these Bible verses that have been shared, God intends for you to be blessed by them and to be educated by them and to be drawn closer to himself through them because he has a magnificent plan for your life. You are called, you are chosen, I believe, for just this time in earth's history to shine the light of Christ. That's going to be shown more in the coming presentations. We'll see you next Tuesday night. And the presenter is Justin, who's presenting on the subject of, real quick, the, boy, right. So tonight was part one of the image of the beast. Tomorrow night is part two, and it is called, you will see on Tuesday night. (laughs) (laughs) Getting put on the spot's not easy. God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.